BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello. In October 1829, George and Robert Stevenson proved that their steam locomotive rocket could pull the trains on the planned Liverpool to Manchester railway more reliably and much faster than any other. More than that, they proved that these moving locomotives were better than ones fixed to the ground that pulled the carriages along on cables. The Stevenson's success that month was the birth of the railway, as we know it, a transport system that spread around the world, and George became known as the father of railways. Robert, his son, went on to eclipse him, becoming the greatest engineer of his age. Besides locomotives, he built bridges, tunnels, embankments. He set the mould for the great booster that railways gave to the Industrial Revolution. With me to discuss George and Robert Stevenson are Colin Duval, Professor Emeritus of Railway Studies at the University of York, Julia Elton, Professor President, former President of the Newcomen Society for the Study of History, the History of Engineering and Technology, and Michael Bailey, Railway Historian and Biographer of Robert Stevenson. Colin Duval, there have been railway tracks for some time before the Stevensons, but not with moving engines. Can you tell me what they've been used for? Well, railways have been around for at least 200 years before the Stevensons came on the scene. We can uh, date them back to the uh, early 17th century. And most of these lines were part of the the mining or extractive industries. So they were carrying uh, coal or minerals like uh, limestone. Uh, and they were very effective as bulk uh, carriers. You could move things on an, on a railway, uh, which it was almost impossible to move uh, on the roads as they existed at the time. But these were short railways. Um, they were usually only a few miles long at maximum, and uh, they were part of uh, a transport system that extended beyond the railway. What, the, what was their power? Was it ho- horsepower? Uh, most of them were, were, were horsepower, yes. Yeah. Uh, although some of these railways used gravity as well, used the weight of the wagons to move them from one end of the track to the other. So that was the original thing there. And when did people start thinking, well, we can develop that? Well, the crucial years of the first decade of the uh, 19th century, uh, when engineers like uh, Richard Trevithick uh, down in Cornwall started experimenting with what was known at the time as high-pressure st- high uh, steam engines, first of all on roads, but then on the early quite crude railways of, of the time, as an alternif- alternative to horsepower. And the driver here was really economics. Um, these are very early steam locomotives re- couldn't move much faster than, than a horse could, but uh, horses were becoming increasingly expensive and, uh, to, to, uh, to, to keep alive. Because the that was because of the war with France. Because of the Napoleonic Wars, exactly. So there was a real economic imperative to, de- to develop an alternative to the horse, and that was the high-pressure steam engine. What was the layout of the transport system in this country before railways got underway? Well, it was quite sophisticated. Um, The road system was not nearly as bad as we often imagine it to be because throughout the 18th century, uh, increasingly, uh, roads have been turnpiked. In other words, the statutory trusts have been set up with responsibility to maintain the roads and to put them in good order. And once engineers like Telford had learned how to create good surfaces, those main roads really were quite quite effective and uh, there were quite sophisticated networks of uh, carriers um, carrying uh, goods from one end of the country to the other. For example, uh, Russell's flying wagons would uh, travel several times a week from London through the West Country down to Exeter. Then, of course, there were the inland... Russell's flying wagons. Russell's flying wagons, yes, yes. uh... Sounds like a Beatles song, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 
But um, inland waterways were very important as well. Of course, the canals, particularly in the north of England uh, and the Midlands, connecting up with improved rivers. So they they carried a lot of coal and and other goods as well, like uh, like pottery around the Midlands and and beer, for example, from uh, Burton down to London. And a lot of of the uh, carrying was done by sea. Coastal shipping was very important. We, we, we tend to forget, uh, as a maritime nation, that uh, Britain was not only trading overseas in the 18th century, but there was a lot of uh, trade went by sea. So beer, for example, was exported from West Dorset, from places like Bridport to London, and along the coast to places like Lyme. So sea travel, coastal vessels were really important. By this time, by the time we're talking about the second, third decade of the 19th century, had the intensive... Uh, um, canal system, especially in the middle and a bit to the north, had it become congested? Yes, congestion was an increasing problem, but particularly in, in the northwest between Liverpool and Manchester which were, which were booming as industrial uh, towns and uh, that, was a, that was a strong imperative again for uh, the development of the early mainline railway as a way of increasing capacity. So there's all sorts of reasons why we, we should have room. Julia Elton, how had George Stevenson made his reputation before 1829? Well, he was born into the northeast coal field in the world that Colin describes as a short haulage and moving coal. And really, really difficult part of life to be born into on the coal fields, very labour-intensive. He was working with engines... And he clearly had an extraordinarily intuitive feel for mechanical engineering. He couldn't read or write. He taught himself to read or write in his late teens. And he had a very strong Geordie accent. He had a very strong Geordie accent. Which was mocked in the courts later in London. Indeed it was, and he never lost it. No, and I... hmm. London's got a lot to answer for, but let's move on. (laughs) Yes! And really, the breakthrough for him came in 1811... He'd had a lot of experience with machinery. And in 1811, there was a brand new pump installed to drain a new coal mine. And nobody could make the pump work. And George Stevenson was asked to go and have a look at it. And he put in the modifications and he drained the mine, having made the engine work, within about two days. And, of course, the great thing about that is that it saved his employers a tonne of money. They suddenly were able to get at this coal face. And so after that, because he'd saved them so much money and he was interested in locomotives, he got a budget to have a go at building a locomotive. And in 1814, he built his first locomotive called Blucher, which was a little model, really. Can we get to the Stockton Darlington Railway? Mm, I'm coming up to the Stockton and Darlington, (laughs) because the whole point about the Stockton and Darlington is this kind of background. Because George Stevenson became, after Blucher, the really the preeminent engineer and the most noticed engineer in, in locomotives. And Who wanted the Stockton Darlington Railway? Hmm? Who wanted to build the Stockton Darlington Railway? Well, the great coal owners, because it was a way of getting the coal down to the sea, down to the Tees, and therefore down to London. And how long would this be? The, the line itself. The line itself. Well, it's 27 miles, and it's a long way on from its 
precursor, which was the Hetton Colliery Railway, which was only eight miles but had horses, winding engines and locomotives and it led the way to the Stockton and Darlington and the Stockton and Darlington was the first line to be drawn primarily by locomotives. And the reason that George Stevenson was so extraordinarily successful is that unlike his predecessors in locomotive development, he understood that the locomotive and the track it was running on were two parts of a perfect whole. And while he was developing the locomotive, he was also developing in tandem the edge rails that it went on. And so the the Hetton Colliery line had cast iron rails, edge rails, which broke. The Stockton and Darlington, because of Stevenson's work actually was fitted with wrought iron edge rails which did not break and because they were strong enough to carry the locomotives they could then increase the size of the locomotives. Did Robert, his son, who went to Edinburgh University was determined that he wouldn't be caught out with his accent anyway did Robert, his son, um, want to come into the business or, or did his father dragoon him into it? I mean, Robert Stevenson, like his father, was born into the northeast coalfield. I don't suppose for a minute, and p- particularly given his also his aptitude for mechanical engineering, I don't suppose for a minute that actually it ever occurred to him to do anything else. Sometimes, even today, you come into a doctor's family and then the next generation, uh, you just... I don't think he was dragooned, I just think it was the way it was. Can we, thank you very much. Michael Bailey, can we move on to the um, Rainhill trials in October 1829 and their significance? The, the shareholders of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway had invested a vast sum of money in that uh, project and they needed to be satisfied that their money had been well spent. By Getting being a train from Liverpool to Manchester. Liverpool to Manchester and, and, back, again. and back again. It was a, 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 indeed from the beginning it was a two-way track unlike the Stockton and Darlington which was just a single track. The amount of money that they were to spend on motive power was crucial to the success of the venture. And so they needed to be satisfied that what George Stevenson was advocating was indeed the best option for them. He was a strong advocate for locomotives because he had experience on the railways that we've just heard from uh, about from Julia. Now... The difficulty is that his advocacy is one thing, but the fact that he was saying to the directors of the railway, my factory in Newcastle made the best locomotives, there was a clear conflict of interest. So the Rainhill trials were not just to demonstrate that locomotives were the right form of motive power, but that also it gave the opportunity to the Stevensons to demonstrate that their locos really were the best. So it was a test. They called in anybody who wanted to go to get the fastest, turn up at Rainhill, and they would have three days of trials, and the fastest would get the contract. That is absolutely right, yes. Now, initially, five um, uh, offers Mm. were made to the directors, but in practice, only three actually participated in the uh, trials. And the rocket ran away with it, didn't it? Yes, it did, yes. The rocket was... Uh, the the technology behind the rocket is in itself quite extraordinary because if you take George Stevenson's locos on the Stockton and Darlington, they were slow, lumbering, five or six miles an hour, hauling coal. What was required on the Liverpool and Manchester was a much faster, much more reliable locomotive that could travel the distance there and, and back. Uh, and what they sought to demonstrate at Rainhill was that the locomotive could actually achieve that. Rocket did 
because of its new technology that Robert Stevenson had developed. Very often we think that George Stevenson built the rocket. He didn't. He was so preoccupied with building the railway line that it was his son Robert who actually did all the development work on the locomotive. And the advancements that were made between the beginning of 1828 and the September of 1830, when the uh, line opened, were quite staggering. And the, the locomotive form uh, was, was uh, developed just in that brief period, about 33 months of work. They got up to 30 miles an hour. Yes, Rocket which, did. Yeah. Which was out of this world in, in those terms, wasn't it? Well, all the people that came, many people came to the Rainhill Trials and they witnessed this locomotive going past them at this speed. They knew straight away that the horse was going to be replaced. It was the fastest thing on earth. So, <laughs> I've used rocket-assisted takeoff <laughs> in the trial, but why resist a good cliché and a bad joke? OK, so it, it really did take off after that, didn't it? That was proof that something big was going on and everybody wanted part of it and money pounded in and commissions pounded in. Well, what was demonstrated at, uh, on the Liverpool and Manchester line was the latent demand for travel that existed because the line was initially built to carry goods from Liverpool, the port of Liverpool to Manchester and, and um, manufactured goods back again. What actually happened was that people turned up in their droves to travel between Manchester and Liverpool and the other way. And consequently, the directors had to play catch-up in providing sufficient locos and carriages to meet this extraordinary demand. Colin de the demand was from very well-off people, though. Well, there was first and second class, but uh, no, until much later, nothing that any working man could use for at all, really. So can you tell us what the obstacles were in the way of the expansion of the railways? There you have the rocket. That's proof positive. It's happening. The North wants it. The industry, industrial revolution is growing. This is what it needs to make it the extraordinary thing it became, the world-changing thing it became. So there were obstacles, though, and what were they? Well, I, I think the short answer is, is vested interests. Um, <clears throat> the railway was being uh, dropped into uh, a country which already had, as I said before, really quite a sophisticated uh, transport system, the inland waterways and the turnpikes and uh, so on. And all of, all of that had taken a lot of money, a lot of capital to build. Uh, and so there were many people who thought, who, who quite rightly saw the railway as a threat to the return that they had confidently expected on the money that they'd invested in, in, in the waterways and so on. And uh, many of these people uh, had the power to oppose the railways in Parliament because all <coughs> railway companies uh, had to get a private act of Parliament, uh, both to set themselves up as limited companies uh, so that if the uh, project went wrong, uh, the shareholders would only lose their initial investment. And that in turn encouraged people to invest in what was not yet a surefire um, limited hit. liability. Right? Limited liability. But the, but the, the, the second uh, power that a parliamentary act gave was, was that of uh, acquiring land on a compulsory basis. So straight away you're setting up a potential conflict of interest between landowners, who of course were very well represented in Parliament, even after the 1832 Reform Act, um, and, uh, and the promoters of, 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 of railway companies. 
London has still had a terrific pull, though. They managed to divert where it was a, a long way from towns and a long way from their houses and so on. They, they were still in... They never left the driving seat for very long, that lot, did they? No, and, and, and they quite quickly learned, actually, that uh, railways would, on the whole, would, would, would do them good uh, because many of these landowners had large estates uh, and they, they were turning farming in, in, into a form of industry and they quickly realised, for example, that the railway was going to be a way of moving uh, agricultural product over much uh, larger um, uh, distances and uh, it, there was there was money to be made out of railways uh, by, by landowners so yes there are clear examples of where landowners uh, forced a railway to divert around an estate or around a country house but on the whole by the end of the 1830s most landowners certainly by the beginning of the 1840s most landowners were supporting most railway projects so there was a consensus. People were joining in. A lot of people, lawyers, of course, saw it as a wonderful opportunity, but investors were piling a lot of it. It became a sort of bubble, didn't it? It, it certainly did. In, I mean, in terms of investment, yeah. There, there was a mini bubble in the, in the late 1830s, uh, but uh, the real bubble, the one we tend to remember now, was the mania of uh, 1844 to 1846, 1847, uh, because by the early 1840s, the success of the railway was, was assured. I mean, some of the companies like the uh, London and Birmingham Railway were paying very s- significant dividends of the order of 10%. And uh, people started pouring money into schemes, some of which were very sound in, in terms of commercial prospects, in terms of engineering, some of which, frankly, were, were simply speculative bubbles. So from 1844 onwards, there were a huge number of bills becoming before Parliament, uh, several hundred uh, in, in each parliamentary session. And Parliament, frankly, was becoming overwhelmed and many of these schemes were not being properly um, scrutinised. I didn't uh, realise it was 700, as big as that. It's, one, it's like the, the West, uh, American West Coast buildings, that sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it, 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 was for, it was for a year or two, yes. Yeah, yes. just for a year or two. Yeah. Julia Elton, what was significant about the building of the London to Birmingham Railway? Well, I think that's very easy. It was the biggest civil engineering project that had ever been done since the pyramids or the Great Wall of China. Take your pick. Well, I'll pick the pyramids. OK, should we stick to the pyramids? (laughs) (laughs) It was absolutely colossal piece of earth moving on an enormous scale. It was 112 miles long, so that it's much longer than Liverpool and Manchester, much longer, than this, obviously, than the Stockton and Darlington. It was the first of what you might call the great main lines. It took, it connected London with the industrial heartlands of the north. And Robert And it Stevenson, took five years. Yes, because it <laughs> took five years because they were up against problems that nobody had ever encountered. Yeah. And actually, the whole I'm taking. I'm saying how small the time it is. I'm, I'm praising them, Julia. Yes, oh, right. Well, good. <laughs> just know. a second here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're praising them because Robert Stevenson is worth every sort of praise. Yes, no, it was extraordinary. But interestingly, then as now, what dog civil engineering are ground conditions and Robert Stevenson hit some of the worst ground conditions that anybody could imagine with no experience and he was the right man in the right place he had every talent unlike his contemporaries including Brunel he was a brilliant civil and a mechanical engineer. Brunel was a terrible so mechanical engineer. The obstacles were having to get the Kilsby Tunnel through that line of, you know, through that hill. When they built the cutting out of Euston Station, they didn't understand that clay would swell when exposed to air, so that all their retaining walls fell in. And they had then to build um, 
retaining arches underneath to keep them keep them apart. You then get to Killsby Tunnel, which is one of the most extraordinary things ever, and there was a bed of quicksand, and although they took borings, the borings just missed the quicksands, and they started digging out this tunnel, and they were flooded, it was flooded and flooded and flooded and flooded, and finally they had to install 13 enormous pumps to, to drain this bed of quicksand. And you can see that to this day because there are great ventilation tunnels and if the train is going slowly enough through the Killsby Tunnel, you can see the daylight coming through. It was a heroic piece of engineering of... It is impossible to praise it too highly and the civil engineering profession learned from it up to this day. And it Rob- laid the basics. Sorry, and Robert Stevenson overlooked every bit of it. Robert Stevenson was the engineer in chief, and he had he was a brilliant administrator. He had a, he was a brilliant picker of men. I will not say women, but there weren't any then. He was he chose a really wonderful team. He oversaw the contractors, the letting of the contracts, the whole organisation of it. He rode the line at least twelve times in the first year or so. He kept an eye on it, and he, of course he had to keep his directors and his shareholders happy. He was the right man in the right place to do it, and it's very hard to underestimate him because you know, he's been so um, eclipsed in our time. Yes, wrongly. So we'll forget about that. Yes. Uh, and um, But uh, <laughs> it took five years. It, uh, it, we're never relevant in this programme. So <laughs> it's just I'd like to say that now and then. Uh, Michael Bailey, um, we've got Rainhill. Now we've got London to Birmingham. Uh, the Stevensons were very heavily connected with both of those. Uh, As it were, what happened next? The early railway systems were so successful that it triggered a great deal of interest, as Colin has outlined, uh, in railways joining other industrial uh, centres all around the country. So there were quite a number of opportunities for investors to create these uh, railways, uh, get them through Parliament, which needed the uh, strength of an engineer who had experience, and because of the successes of George and Robert Stevenson, then they, they were the natural first port of call for the groups of investors uh, to, to choose. So Robert Stevenson uh, went on to be the engineer for many, many miles of railway in the late 1830s and into the 1840s. Uh, there's a couple of thousand, I've read. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, by by the time we get to 1850, he had been uh, uh, overseeing the... Uh, construction of a third of the country's entire railway system, which was the best part of 2,000 miles by that time. And he was a great bridge builder. In one case, the one of the bridges he built is still thought of as an extraordinary feat at the time, across the Menai Straits. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Well, that one, of course, was just uh, in, in the last decade of his uh, life. Um, he, uh, It was the most difficult bridge to build, uh, the constraints were such that you, you couldn't put an arch bridge in. The Admiralty, funnily enough, was the uh, uh, organisation that uh, protested against any height restriction for their vessels. Not that Royal Naval vessels uh, from time to time would need to go through the Menai Straits. I mean, the idea was ridiculous, but the Admiralty insisted that there was sufficient clearance. So it meant that there was a big span requiring this very large uh, bridge to be built to join Anglesey to the mainland. And Robert Stevenson and his team developed uh, the, uh, the, the, the tubular bridge 
um, which we can still see an example of today at Conway because the, the uh, uh, Conway was a much smaller tubular bridge. Uh, but the Britannia Bridge was a magnificent bridge which required a great deal uh, of thought on A, in the manufacturer, and also B, for the erection. And all, b- both of these challenges Stevenson met extremely well. Colin Deville, can we put them in some sort of context? We have been talking about the Stevensons, and they were extraordinary father and son, what they'd, but others were around as well. Can you give us something of the context? The thing is taken off now. What's going on? Well, yes, the, the Stevensons were certainly not the only engineers. Uh, we've heard from uh, Julia, the IK Brunel, of course, was, a, was another leading engineer at that time. There are other, other very, very important engineers like uh, Joseph Locke, who did a lot of important work with Robert Stevenson um, initially. But I think we should remember that building railways uh, requ- required all sorts of people to get involved. Now, we've moved into the main line era of the 1830s and the 1840s. Uh, we've mentioned finance briefly. So, so bankers were very important. Lawyers were absolutely central to, to the promotion of railways. Landowners, we, we've also mentioned, you had to get landowners on, on board and you had to get politicians on board. So railway building from the 1840s onwards was really about bringing together coalitions of uh, different parties, different individuals, different institutions to create the, the finance uh, and the, the political support for constructing these, these, these amazing uh, feats of engineering throughout the countryside. But as I understand it, Parliament was uh, very often, except in one or two cases, where they on side and egging it on or helping it at least. Well, Parliament, Parliament on the whole um, approved the uh, the coming of the railway, and Gladstone was a key figure here. We're talking now about the young Gladstone, still in his thirties, a Peelite Conservative at this time in in the in the eighteen forties, and he was a leading uh, advocate of uh, the expansion of the railway system, partly because he could see how it would it would benefit um, um, individuals, uh, poorer people. He was he was a great advocate of making trains uh, train travel cheaper, and. And um, he was also initially rather keen to see uh, a lot more strategic planning of of the network. Uh, You have to remember that uh, at this stage, railway schemes were promoted by uh, by regional interests, by industrialists and so on. Uh, They had to convince Parliament on a case-by-case basis that uh, a particular project was worthwhile. But there was a brief moment when Parliament uh, thought, well, maybe we should take a more systematic look. Maybe we should have a strategic plan that would develop a, a nicely integrated national system and the Board of Trade which at that time had uh, the oversight of railway development set up uh, a railway board colloquially called the Five Kings which was headed by El, El Dalhousie, Earl Dalhousie later went on to become Governor General of, uh, uh, of India um, who, who, who attempted to put some kind of order on this, this, the, these myriad schemes that were coming before Parliament so between 18, the, the summer of 1844 in the summer of 1845, there was this attempt to develop a, a, a strategic plan, but it all fell apart. Michael? I'd just like to uh, make reference again to Robert Stevenson during this time. He was very much against this free market approach. Uh, he was an old-school Tory, as it were, but uh, he criticised uh, the, the work of Parliament and the free market system. And I'd just like to uh, give you one brief quote as to his opinion. He writes, the extraordinary features of the parliamentary legislation and practice consists in the anomalies, incongruities, irreconcilabilities and absurdities which pervade the entire mass of legislation. That says it all, his opinion. (laughs) 
We've talked we've, uh, we've uh, talked about uh, uh, bridges and, and all the other things he did. Um, do, do you think that that, that um, he had they had an undue influence? Do you think the as it were the Stevensons collared the market? Well, I suppose you could say that. Um, they produced a model that was immensely successful. And, of course, their gauge of four foot eight and a half went on to become, to become standard. Um, yes, I mean, I, th- I, th- I mean, I think that they, they influenced and dominated the railway world in, in, an, in an extraordinary way, really, because they were successful and because they knew what they were doing and they understood about how railways worked. And I think George Stevenson understood that the locomotive was going to take off and then Robert consolidated that by his brilliance. Is it possible to ask and maybe the others want to join in here, how far this, the railways can be seen to have given an extraordinary and exceptional boost to the industrial revolution in this country, turning it from a very important revolution uh, event for this country which was being copied also, but into uh, became a world dominating event for quite a while and in in, in its longer-term effect on grab-side-bread was far and away the most important revolution, the most important, had biggest influence on people's lives of any revolution there's ever been. Now, how far did the railways play? What part did the railways play in that? I think you could, I think you could liken them, in a sense, to the effect that computers have had on our own time. Within about 15 years, they had an enormous effect on everybody. Michael pointed out that unleashing a latent desire to travel, we're still living with that. People want to go places and the railways gave them the opportunity to do that. It changed people's diets. You could commute to work. You didn't have to stay in your life. It completely changed people's perceptive on life. And, of course, it reduced the... the, it reduced the country in size, if you see what I mean. You could actually... It didn't take you three days to get from London to Newcastle by horse. You could be there in a day. It shrank people's perceptions, in a sense, and globe, began to globalise the world. And also the factories for wrought iron and building bricks and mm. all that sort of thing expanded and expanded, and it became a great a cluster, of, a virtuous circle cluster. Um Let's let, let's include Brunel. I was a bit dismissive of him because he he, he gets he, he forefronts too much and sometimes. Anyway, never mind. What Robert Stevenson's relationship with Brunel was a good one, as I understand it. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, the the pair of them were professional men, and they got on extremely well. Even though, like barristers, they found themselves representing their clients with very different interests, uh, and therefore there was an obligation. Uh, to uh, speak out on behalf of their clients very much in opposition to each other. But they understood that. They were professional men. Uh, They had this strong relationship that we have, fortunately, quite a lot of correspondence between them, which has survived. And you can see the warmth of their uh, uh, relationship uh, in that uh, correspondence. Robert Stevenson passionately disagreed with Brunel over the choice of gauge. He argued strongly for the retention of standard gauge, whereas Brunel, as we know, uh, uh, pursued the broad gauge. Uh, Brunel also... That's pers- the, that's the, 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 the width of the track, yeah. but, uh, uh, which uh, was wider on the Great Western than it was uh, on uh, to, the, yeah, to yeah. the standard uh, gauge that we are now uh, are used to. Uh, the other point of uh, contention as well was the Brunel's selection of the atmospheric uh, s- system of propulsion. 
which needs a, you know, a very brief explanation. Trains without locomotives uh, that were p- pushed along the track uh, by the evacuation of air, as a vacuum system, as it were. Mm. Um, Brunel ex- spent quite a lot of his uh, employer's money on developing a system down in Devon. Um, Stevenson would have none of it. Uh, he disagreed with it and would have have no part of it. Uh, so, th- again, Parliament, Parliament considered the whole question of the gauge of the track, the whole question of uh, atmospheric railway system, and that put the two of them uh, in opposing camps. But for all that, they were good friends. I, I think what's coming out from what Michael has said, that Robert really was, was a system builder. Uh, yes, you know, he was brought in as the engineer, the consultant engineer for particular projects, but all the time he saw the importance of the railway developing as a network that would spread a- across the company. Um, so across as, the country. Across the country. And, uh, and as, as Julia said, you know, that enabled the expansion of import-export trade and so on and so forth. Whereas Brunel technically brilliant though he was he's a maverick really i think brunel but brunel was locked into a particular model of the railway particularly with the initial um, railway between london and bristol a mercantile model of the railway in which the railway would be uh, an essential link in in a trade link from from the americas he wasn't so interested in the railway serving the the industrial powers of of, of the the north and, and the midlands and i think that tension remained uh, in in the two men's uh, outlooks th- throughout their profession professional careers. Stevenson wanted the, 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 the network. Brunel was much more interested in, uh, in, in making the Great Western the supreme railway of the age. Can I come back to you in a moment, Julia? Just, um, I, I, I skipped through the, the effect that the railways had on the Industrial Revolution. Do you, have any, do you have any sort of, as it were, kill bullet points to take this better to the listener than I did? Well, no, I think you're right that the, 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 the construction of railways and then their operations provided an enormous boost for industry because the railways needed huge quantities of bricks and, and, and wrought iron. Uh, but equally, by reducing uh, the, the cost of travel and by speeding it up, that encouraged all sorts of industries to develop by expanding the scale of markets, both within the United Kingdom, but also uh, overseas as well. And Stevenson went to advise throughout Europe and he went to South America and so on. So it's, you wanted to say something, Julia? Well, really, that it seems to me that what makes Robert Stevenson outstanding is that he's got an enormous amount of what you might call engineering common sense. And Brunel, for all his brilliance, just, it seems to me, didn't have that at all. And the atmospheric railway is a very good example of that, that Stevenson talked about a railway as a machine, and he says that quite often, and so that and a machine is full of parts, and all the parts have to work in order to make the machine function. And the thing about the atmospheric railway is that it was too inflexible, and there were far too many parts that would go wrong, and it was never going to function properly. And in a sense, it seems to me that the atmospheric railway is the thing that divides them, and Brunel, for all his brilliance was never going to have the kind of engineering common sense that was going to influence really the world in the way that Robert Stevenson did. Let's just dwell on that for another moment, Michael Bailey. I skipped over it, but he was called by these other countries to advise them, Switzerland and all over the place in Europe. 
Yes, uh, Robert Stevenson was consulted on many, many projects, uh, it, not only in Europe, but also further afield. Uh, in Europe, several of the countries that we're you know, only too familiar with, with railways, uh, France, Belgium, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, uh, he was involved in the first railway schemes in each of these uh, uh, countries. And indeed, he received awards from the governments of the, uh, those, uh, some of those countries uh, for, for the work that he did. Uh, Switzerland, he was a consulting engineer to the uh, fairly new Swiss government because of all the uh, the cantonal problems that they had uh, earlier, Uh, and he advised them on a complete transport system, largely dominated by railways and the the lake system, of course. But then he went further afield. He was consulted on a railway in Egypt, for example, to join Alexandria with Cairo, and he got brought into that as the engineer-in-chief for that uh, project. Further afield, uh, India. He was the uh, engineer-in-chief for the Great Indian Peninsula Railway. He never actually went there. His associate engineers uh, were sent out there. James uh, Barclay was uh, the chief engineer for the construction of the line. But Stevenson's influence uh, through Parliament and through the boardrooms of the City of London uh, was became so strong that they looked to him uh, sooner than, than, than others uh, for his advice. Colin, Colin Duval, was his influence so strong that he began to advise, he seems a modest man, not him, say it's go- it would be good for you to have a railway there, and good for you to have a railway there, would he begin to, to tell people where they should plant their, re- plant well, their lines? Well, like all engineers, he, he was certainly very influential when it came to particular uh, projects. So I th- I'm, not, I'm not sure that he himself would, would initiate projects, um, but he was quite a wealthy man by the end of his life. He was also an, an MP, wasn't he? So uh, he, he wore many hats, uh, and uh, if, if somebody was interested in a particular railway running from A to B, he would be a, a go-to person. And um, he was often... Um, influential in uh, enabling one scheme to go ahead rather than another. I mean, a good example is the uh, railway from uh, London to um, Holyhead, which was uh, an essential part of governing what, of course, at that time, the, the island of Ireland was, was, was part of the United Kingdom. Uh, the government was very keen in the 1840s to have a railway. And uh, Stevenson threw his hat into the railway from Chester to Holyhead, which Michael has already mentioned in connection with the uh, bridge over the Menai Straits. Now, that wasn't the only um, project. So Stevenson, Robert Stevenson, was scared Scarcely a disinterested um, uh, party in the discussions over how to create this link um, between London and, and Holyhead. But he, yes, disinterested party. What do you think? What do you think it had any? What effect did it have on uh, when Gladstone introduced the cheaper fare? Did it have, begin to have a big effect on ordinary people? They went to the seaside. This sort of thing. Can you tell yes. us a bit about that? No, I mean, suddenly people could go on holiday. There's an absolutely charming music front called the Excursion Train Galop of about 1860, which shows an open railway carriage going past Shakespeare Cliff on its way to Dover, packed with people dressed in their holiday clothes, waving their hats in the air and going on holiday. Yes, that's the thing about it, unleashed a desire for travel, not only in the upper classes who already sort of had it, but right 
right the way down. I think Julia's right that that excursion trains were extremely important in enabling working class people to travel but Gladstone's Act of 1844 which required railway companies to offer trains at a penny a mile. Penny a mile was actually quite expensive in terms of uh, working class wages at the time so most working class people in the 1840s would have only travelled on a parliamentary train maybe uh, every few years to to move to to search for work or something like that. It wasn't until much later in say the 1870s that railway travel became cheap enough for ordinary working people to, to travel on a weekly basis. Uh, and Robert Stevenson particularly brought the, uh, the business, the trade, the skill of engineering right up the social scale. His father had started being dismissed in the London uh, law room for not being understood because he spoke Geordie. And uh, Robert Stevenson, the Queen Victoria, allowed his cortege to go through Hyde Park, a royal park, and he buried in Westminster Abbey and so on and so forth. It achieved then... Uh, great heights. Can you can you expand on that a bit? Yes, I think it's important to realise that Robert Stevenson went up in the social ca- uh, scale quite significantly, and by the get time you get to the 1840s and into the 1850s, he was very much uh, uh, the man of London society. He was well known in Westminster in the uh, in parliamentary circles. He was himself an MP from 1847. Uh, he was also extremely well known in the boardrooms uh, of the uh, City of London. Uh, And so he started to exert quite a lot of influence. People had considerable respect for his views. Uh, Very often, when there were disputes which were difficult to resolve, they would ask Robert Stevenson to act as an arbitrator, uh, because such was the respect in which he was held, that people would accept his views, which dispelled the argument. Was there still a feeling? Can I come in and say? Was there still a feeling? Or answer that? Maybe this is what you want to ask. Was there still a feeling that engineers were still somehow below the salt? That really you had to buy a country house, and and he himself got into Parliament, and did he buy a country house, or whatever he did or he didn't? That they were slightly below the salt socially. I think we're running out of time. Have you got time to answer that? Um, I think in their day, no, that they had risen well above the salt. I think it's subsequently that they've sunk back to below the salt. Um, I mean, I was, in fact, going to say about the Great Exhibition in which Robert Stevenson played a really seriously important part and he was about to have a terrible row with the commissioners and leave. And the letters all say, for God's sake, get him on board. We cannot lose him. We have to get him back at all costs. And he was upgraded to being a commissioner of the Great Exhibition, really listened to. And so, since his day, somehow engineers have sunk beneath the salt. I don't know why. Well, maybe that is certainly another programme, but thanks to you, Julia Elton, and to Colin DeBell and to Michael Bailey. Next week we'll be discussing George Eliot's study of provincial life, Middlemarch, called by Virginia Woolf, one of the few English novels for grown-up people. So there we are. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Yeah, you're, you're, you're being recorded. There you go. You get your best quote in, Julia. Well, well, well I, was, I, I mean, my best quote is the Britannia Tubular Bridge. The Britannia Tubular Bridge was the most risky, the most dangerous, the most terrifying project that anybody did. And it involved a whole lot of new techniques, including how the hell you were going to put your tubes in place when the Admiralty won't let you shut the navigation channels. And so they were floated into place on pontoons and jacked up. And Robert Stevenson is terrified of the floating, is terrified of the whole thing. And he is recorded by the painter who painted them all up on the bridge 
as being to outward seeming as calm and immobile as his iron structure, but, it is n- but as his nerve tension increased with the suspense attending the carrying out of the complex movements of floating the tubes, involuntary tears were seen to be trickling down his face. They were under tremendous stress. They had the whole of society... And the, uh, the, they had the whole of the expectations for society riding on their shoulders, and Robert Stevenson more than any of them, mm. and it showed. Well, I'm glad you, I'm really am glad that's a very good connection, and it'll go to just about as many people. Yes. You know, all day he listened to it. Yeah, right. Well, uh, uh, this 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 question about whether engineers were below the sword, I I, I think I agree with Julia that uh, by certainly by the second half of the nineteenth century, uh, engineers had had crawled very successfully up the the, the, the social scale, and yes, arguably there there has been something of a decline since. But I think at least in part of the explanation is that engineers have themselves to blame. They they have fragmented their professional organisation, and actually the Stevensons are are a good example of this. So by by eighteen twenty. There was a, 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 a professional institution, the Institution of Civil Engineers. It's, it's still very much with us. Um, and that rem- represented all sorts of engineers, uh, engineers who'd been working on uh, ports and harbours, on roads, um, and increasingly uh, canals as well. And they were a little bit sniffy, I think, about um, the, the early railways. The mechanical engineers. Uh, the, the mechanical engineers as they became known, yes. Yeah. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> Rude mechanicals. The rude mechanicals. So, so the civil, the civil, the civils were already, you know, very much of the middling order. They were very much the part of the emerging professional middle middle classes in in Georgian and early uh, Victorian England. Of course, in the eighteen forties, the mechanical engineers, as they were self-identifying, had set up their own institution, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers, which mm. again is, is still with us, and, which and had George Stevenson as, as, the first, as first president, president. And, and Robert as second, and and the, this process of the sort of balkanisation of the professional structure continued through the 19th century so it became increasingly difficult for for engineers uh, as a group to, to speak with one voice to, to power to, in, in parliament and so on. It's a consequence of specialisation of course when you were uh, in the early 1800s you were a civil engineer you encompassed all of these disciplines but as you started to specialise that's when the institution started to, uh, to, to, to build up and develop. One of the disciplines like bridge building and tunnelling and embankment uh, security. Well, that was all part of the institution of civil engineers, but then the structural engineers uh, became a new institution in their turn uh, because, again, there were specialists in in structural engineering as opposed to uh, other forms. Was it this sort of the dead hand of gentility that went over it? Well, I think there's a certain thing about... It always seems to me that the language doesn't help us that English in this particular instance doesn't help us in, you know, you're an ingenieur, etc. If you're in France or in Germany here, you're an engineer, which could just as well be somebody lying flat on their back on a Saturday morning repairing a car as it could be somebody designing crossrail. And it's very hard no, to... No, 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 no. You're, you're actually... That's, that's post hoc. I mean, it's because we have made it so. We can, we can, say, we can say engineering just as good a way as the French can say engineer. I mean, that's not the end of that. The fact is that, that the people themselves have been put in that, in that category and, and then the word has actually been, has de- been diminished to describe them. It isn't the word itself that carries the scope. No, but it is in the outside world engineer equals 
engine which could be anything? I, I, I think the fact that uh, certainly railways and many other important um, forms of infrastructure in the 19th century were um, financed by, by, by private money. In, in the United Kingdom. So so the financing of railways mm. and the need to uh, draw in private capital rather than using the state's resources uh, meant that financiers and bankers and indeed lawyers, as we mentioned before, were arguably a lot more important in the promotion and indeed the, the construction of railways in the 19th century. So the, so the engineers were part of a team, but if one were to single out you know, the, the most important members of that team, you can make a strong argument for saying it, it, it was finance and, 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 and the, the, the legal profession. That didn't happen so much on, say, the continent, where the state played a much bigger role in the um, planning and the construction of railways. And I think that has had a knock-on effect. The engineers found it very difficult to take uh, the place at the top of the table when the money was coming from, uh, from, from banks, from banking houses, from financial institutions. Was there any... Sorry. I was just going to say one topic that perhaps we didn't have the opportunity to develop is that the two Stevensons were uh, partners in the company in Newcastle that made locomotives. Now, we'll briefly mention that uh, in the context of the uh, Rainhill trials. Yeah. Uh, but it went on, of course, the Robert Stevenson and company went on to become a major exporter of locomotives. Uh, and, and in fact, began the growth of an enormous industry in this country. Centres in Glasgow, in Manchester, in Leeds, in Newcastle and elsewhere. Carlisle. Carlisle. They built them in Carlisle. Yeah, in a small number, yeah, yeah, not quite. Still, well, we're on the map. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a major, major industry uh, that I think, uh, you know, it's, it's all too easy to forget. These days, we do make trains in this country, but it's only a shadow mm. of its former self. And why is that? And other people got better at it, and we packed it in. Uh, we packed it in, frankly. Um, Why uh, was it, that? It's, well, it, it's, of course, so much cheaper to buy a train from a large train builder in Japan or in... Or in but uh, we were a large Japan. train builder once. Yes, exactly, it? absolutely. Yeah, well, and we, I think it's tragic that... We, uh, we, we come back to the dominance of a particular kind of finance in, in yeah. the British economy. And, um, you know, if you, can, if you can invest that money overseas in train manufacturers overseas and reduce uh, British manufacturing of trains to ba basically an assembly line, then that's, that's where the money goes. Um, other countries, uh, I mean, Germany is a good example, France as well, uh, their financial systems are structured in a way that pays much, gives a much higher priority to, to manufacturing within the, within the nation state. Well, that settles it, doesn't it? Okay, it's a bit, a bit <laughs> sad, being, isn't it? Yes, yeah, very sad. So, Here we're being rescued with an offer from the BBC. <laughs> from the producers. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.